and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcast. Today, we will be exploring the world of something that we all experience and we all struggle with, failure, but also the science of failing well. And I am delighted and honoured to welcome Dr. Amy Edmondson, Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School and one of the most influential management thinkers in the world. Amy, welcome to the show. I'm delighted and honoured to be here. Likewise, I am so excited to have this conversation with you about your latest book, The Right Kind of Wrong, and how learning from failure can teach us to thrive. And your research on teams and psychological safety is the reference for so many change and leadership practitioners, and I pull on it all the time in my work on creating more inclusive and collaborative human systems and helping teams to, to gel. And this podcast is all about that, understanding the experience, efforts and mistakes that we can make in driving <laughs> yes. transformation and learning from them, of course. So can we start there then? Because yes. humans aren't an exact science, are they? And neither no. is failing. No, no, so. no. And in fact, you know, one of the things I hope to do with this book is, is help people make a distinction between mistakes and failures that are not caused by mistake. I mean, I'm mm. I'm a fan of learning from from all kinds of failures, mm. but there are failures, and I think they are increasingly essential because of the speed of change and the and the you know the the challenge of of the world in which we operate. Mm. There are many failures that are in fact not at all caused by mistake. They are the undesired, unsuccessful results of experiments in new territory. And I call those intelligent failures. So I think it's helpful to get out of the habit of thinking that everything go, that goes wrong is a mistake. Absolutely. Certainly some things are mistakes. And mm. a mistake only exists when there does exist prior knowledge about how to get the result you want, but we made a mistake and didn't use it or, mm. or deviated from mm. it in, in some way. Mm. And I think the language is so important, isn't it? Because Mistake is seen as negative. Error is seen as negative. Failure is seen as negative. And that narrative is perpetuated in organizations, isn't it? And particularly in whether we speak about failure or not. And we'll come to that. But before we go there, I would love it if you could just walk us through the three archetypes. You've already touched on intelligent failure. Sure. So the intelligent failures are the good kind. You yeah. know, they're the they're the kind of failure that scientists do for a living. They are the result of thoughtful forays into new territory. So they, to be intelligent, a failure has to be in new territory in pursuit of a goal with a hypothesis, by which I mean you have good reason to believe it might work. Mm. And no bigger than they have to be to learn, right? So, mm. so that's sort of the quintessential sort of scientific idea, right? That we we don't really know, but we've done our homework. We develop a hypothesis and we try it. Now, of course, scientists do that every day in labs, but in our lives, we do that too. I mean, yeah. Every time, you know, you try something new or make a new friend or go on a blind date or what have you, that's possibility of intelligent failure might happen. Basic failures are simple. They are failures caused by, you know, a single cause, mm. usually a mistake, but usually mm. a mistake. You put the uh, milk in the cupboard rather than in the fridge and it and it goes sour, right? That's mm. it's a failure. It's caused by a mistake. And then there are complex failures, which are multi-causal. They are the kinds of failures that happen when a handful of factors come together in just the wrong way. And importantly, any one of the factors on its own would not 
have caused a failure. You mm. needed several. And I think so. Inter- intelligent failure is the right kind of wrong in right. terms of, <laughs> in right. terms of you right. know, it takes you to new territory, and you have to fail to learn. It's a little bit like uh, you talk about Edison and his ten thousand ways of flight, but it didn't work until he got to the way that worked. Exactly. And so, if you're in new territory, you know, if you're a scientist, if you're an inventor, if you're an innovator in a company, you know intellectually anyway, that Mm. failures will happen. They have to be, they're the stepping stones to success because Mm. you're in new territory, but it it doesn't, it's still not always easy to cope with it, right? You have to sort of train your brain to say, that's okay. Like when Edison said, I haven't failed. I found 10,000 ways that don't work. Mm. He's training himself to be okay with it because of the greater opportunity. Mm. And I think it's it brings me to the whole idea of reframing and also context, because what you've just said about the three archetypes is around the context is key, isn't it? So let's go to context before I come back to reframing. Okay. Can you, and you give some brilliant <laughs> examples in, in your book as to how context is so key and the storytelling of, you know, one of your first anecdotes around you as a PhD student and having a hypothesis and thinking that, you know, from the airline crews that, you know, teams made less failures and less failures if, if they were more collegiate and then moving to the medical healthcare sector and trying out that hypothesis and finding out that, in fact, that wasn't necessarily the case. So can you, can yes. you extrapolate a little bit more on how context helped sure. you there? Sure. So first I'll say, I mean, when I think about context, right, that's a big word, you know, what does that really mean? Or what, which dimensions of Mm. context should we be particularly tuned into? Mm. And I essentially identify two dimensions as important. One has to do with the degree of uncertainty that you face. Now, if you're a researcher, and I'll come back to my own study and also that aviation Mm. study, Mm. if you're a researcher almost by definition, you're in a high uncertainty environment because you're trying to develop new knowledge that we don't yet have. And the other dimension is what are the stakes, you know, financially, reputationally, or from a human safety Mm. perspective? And you want, of course, to react differently or behave differently when you're in a very high stakes, high risk environment versus a low mm. risk one, you know, so if you're in the laboratory, it's fine to try things that might not work, right? Yeah, if you're at 30,000 feet with, you know, yeah. 200 passengers, you, you, you want to be very mm. cautious indeed. Mm. And so context matters first mm. and foremost. Now, despite that arguably obvious intellectual point, people still struggle, you know, even scientists will struggle with failures in their you know, essentially low stakes, but high uncertainty context, which is the very domain where you are dependent on intelligent Mm. failures to make progress. Mm. So in the aviation study, you know, you had a hypothesis, which was that it was, it was related to fatigue and functioning pilots. And of course Mm. it would be unethical to you know, tire pilots out and then put them in a plane to see how well they did, right? So you do it in a simulator instead. Mm. And so they had more fatigued pilots who were fatigued because they had just spent, you know, three days flying straight through. And then you had the less fatigued pilots who had just come off of three days of rest. They left them in the teams they were in. To their surprise, the more fatigued crews had fewer problematic errors than mm. the well-rested crews. And like that doesn't you know, initially that didn't make much sense, but what they realized was that these individuals, they were coming together as teams 
And as individuals, they were indeed making more mistakes in the simulator, but their team members were catching and correcting them, right? So that they had become good teams Mm. and the good teams, as good teams are, were able to compensate for each other's shortcomings and and perform very well Mm. as teams. Mm. Whereas the the well-rested crews hadn't yet learned to team with each other. So as teams, they didn't perform as well. So it was a kind of surprise, you know, finding, but a very elegant one in Mm. in retrospect. Mm. Now, in my own research, you know, many years later, very different context, I was looking to study, partly building on that research, whether better teams measured by a well, well-developed team survey instrument that measured mm-hmm. teamwork, quality of relationships and quality of, of leadership and so on in teams, patient care teams, whether better teams would have fewer errors in the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened was I got the data, I had the team data, and then I got the error data and I put them together. And my hypothesis at first appeared to be just totally wrong in that the data were saying that better teams had higher, not lower error rates. Now, Mm. you know, wait just a minute. That can't be Mm. right. You know, it just Mm. doesn't make sense. And it occurred to me, not right away, but after a few hours of being very anxious and and, and worried, what occurred to me was that maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes. Maybe they're reporting more mistakes. Mm. Maybe they're more okay with the reality of the complex error-prone system in which they work meant that the quicker we talk about them, the better we do. When the researchers came by to say, tell us about you know the errors that happened here this week, they were, here you go. Whereas mm. in the other, you know, in some of the, the teams that were measured as not very good teams, like nothing here, nothing to see here, you know? Mm. So my hypothesis was wrong. I had profoundly failed in my research aspiration to show that something would happen that didn't. And I was coming to the conclusion that our error data were flawed, right? That they weren't actually objective, that they were Mm -hmm. in fact systematically biased based on something which I first referred to as the interpersonal climate, right? Mm -hmm. If you had a, a problematic interpersonal climate, you weren't talking about mistakes. If you had a good interpersonal climate, you were Later on, I I called that psychological safety. safety. And so my failure, my research failure, actually led to subsequent research successes. Yeah, so basically new new territory, discovery. New territory, exactly. But it doesn't mean that those first few Mm. hours weren't horrible, right? I mean, I I felt terrible about being wrong. I felt terrible about in a sense, wasting the time of very busy doctors and nurses who filled out my survey. And here I was with nothing Mm. that I could possibly publish or say um, Mm. until I began to think, wait a minute, maybe something else is going on here. And then, of course, that led to subsequent follow-up research to Mm. try to understand that better. It's a reframe though, isn't it? And It's a reframe. Oh, it's a total reframe. But it starts with yourself, doesn't it? That's the biggest challenge is getting over my own emotional Reaction exactly yeah. so important and mm. and and the reframe in this case was one that sort of from okay well if they've given me these error data they must be right you know and, yes. and to wait a minute maybe it's not the full story right maybe yeah, yeah. and maybe this is maybe collecting those kinds of data is harder than we had thought yeah and the assumptions we all have about what's right and what's wrong and the 
the confirmation bias we have to go <laughs> to go and validate that. It also brings me to the the fear of speaking up and the fear of admitting that maybe I was wrong or maybe it's not going to work. We hear a lot of competing narratives for me around failure, around the fail fast, which is very prevalent in organizations, or you know, just fail, fail fast. In your opinion, Amy, can we fail fast? And you know, what caveats yes, would you put on that? If, right? Yes, yes if, if, right? So this goes back to <clears throat> context, where <clears throat> in a context where there's very high uncertainty and the stakes are manageable, then we can fail fast. And in fact, we should, because it's mm. the only way to make progress. Mm. And, and so you know, if, if, you're, if you're an entrepreneur or you're in a laboratory as a scientist or you're in an R&D department, you should be failing fast. I mean, you should be working fast mm. to find out what works as fast as you can mm. and what doesn't work as fast yeah. as you can. That's cost efficient. Right? Mm. If, if you know, if you if it takes you months to find out that something doesn't work when it could have taken weeks or days, then it's just not a good use of your your resources. Mm. So the fail fast mindset and mentality is a very good fit for reasonably low stakes and very high uncertainty environments. That's where it makes sense. Entrepreneurs, you know, mm. inventors, but. That would be a very bad mindset for passenger air travel, right? Yeah. Or for cardiac surgery. Mm. You know, you you want to um, succeed brilliantly. Right? You, yeah. want, you yeah. want to be all over it. You want to mm. you want to be uh, sure that people are speaking up in a timely way, so that you don't make preventable errors mm. and preventable failures. Because if I look at sort of senior levels of organizations, a lot of the culture is still based around fear. And there isn't mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. the speak up culture. And they talk about fail fast and failure is mentioned. But for me, that's the whole paradox. It's mentioned, but it's still taboo. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yep. It's kind of lip service. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, you know, let's fail fast. But meanwhile, if you don't meet your targets, you know, exactly. you're out of here. Right. So mm. there's a failure to provide context appropriate mm. language and mindsets. And so then people just hear it as, a mixed message. And when there's a mixed message, you're always, you're going to be cautious. You're not going to take smart risks. How can we use failure and what we understand about failure and context to counter that? Because if I look at what they're doing and how they talk about failure and the fact that for me, a leader's job is to create the conditions for people to thrive and for quality right. decision making to happen. Right. But therefore, we're asking them to create the conditions for their team to fail intelligently. But right. they're not often they're looking not to fail at all because it's their right. team and therefore it's their yeah. reputation and therefore so right. it's this competing narrative again. How yes, how can they is. step out of that, Amy? It is. And I think in <clears throat> in the face of that competing narrative, many leaders just will naturally default to essentially the the old-fashioned narrative, which is, mm. you know, failure is not an option. You've got to hit your targets, et cetera, which is fine in an extremely high certainty environment. Mm. But most of the companies that I study or work with today are not in high certainty no. environments. No. And so when they're sending these either on purpose or just inadvertently, these strong messages that essentially say only hitting your targets or only perfection is welcome around here, it's not very effective in ensuring <clears throat> perfection, mm. but it is effective in ensuring that people don't speak up. Right? Yes. So, yes, absolutely. It's, which is ironic because mm. in a sense, what they're doing is making it 
harder for people to perform mm. well, mm. not easier. And that's not what they intend at all. So mm. I think what today's leaders need to understand is that in, in turbulent times, that's what we face, mm. things are more likely to go wrong than ever before. And in turbulent times, innovation is more necessary than ever before. So for both of those reasons, the messaging needs to be, we are striving for excellence. You know, we're ambitious. We're excited about our purpose and our value proposition. And we understand Hmm. that it's chaotic out there, you know, and we want to hear from you anytime you have Hmm. a concern or an idea or, you know, Hmm. an opportunity that you see to sort of innovate or, you know, make things Hmm. better. In other words, come clean about the nature of the turbulent reality that lies ahead and be honest about the fact that some things will not work out as we had hoped. They've got to overcome the the old-fashioned mental model, which is mm. that the relationship between effort and success is clear. You know, you try hard, you mm. get success. You don't try hard, you get failure. It's like, well, sometimes that's true. But it's also the case, sometimes, just ask any scientist, mm. you try really hard and you get a failure because you're in new territory, right? And mm. sometimes, believe it or not, one of us might mail it in and we get a success anyway through sheer luck. Right? Mm. So helping people kind of update their mental models to be more appropriate for a turbulent, uncertain world is the leader's job. And navigating uncertainty for them is difficult, isn't it? So if I look at perfection of I need to be right and not the right kind of wrong, um, yeah. it's it's the shift I discuss quite a lot between from perfection to excellence. Now, you mentioned excellence. Yes. Could you reframe excellence for us in an uncertain world in terms sure. of what it means for failures and how yeah. we could yeah. reframe our thinking? Because I, you're right, it's about the mental model and how we it how really we decide to is. think about it. And so first, we rec- you have to recognize that you have a default mental model of excellence that looks like a perfection, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's sort of that's how we think about excellence. Yeah. Well, here's how we need to rethink excellence. Excellence means preventing as many, and there's no reason why we can't aspire to prevent all basic failures Mm -hmm. and anticipating and preventing, or at least mitigating complex failures. Mm. And again, I mean, there's no reason why we can't prevent most of them, if not all of them and welcoming, embracing, pushing for more intelligent failures. That's what excellence looks like. And that means being error aware, being aware Mm. that errors will happen so that we catch and correct them before they cause real harm and encouraging smart risks yeah, and closing down failing projects sooner rather than later. That's what excellence looks like today. Which is probably seen as a risk in itself in, in quite a lot of organizations in terms of saying, yeah. I don't think that's going to work. We're going to leave it there and pivot or but, not. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Pivot. You know, pivot is a great word. And mm. I bring that in in the book because yes. it's, you know, for, for some companies and I empathize, you know, it's it's just too hard to say we're going to celebrate the failure. Forget it. We're never going to do that. <laughs> but we can celebrate the pivot. Right? Mm. And the pivot is essentially forward facing, you know, whereas the failure is a little bit backward facing, still important. I think we always Mm. want to look at our failures. We want to, we want to learn, learn from them, but it might be an easier sell to celebrate the pivot. Like, what are we going to try next? Yeah. What new opportunities are we going to experiment with? Yeah. Small is beautiful doing it. Yeah. I want to come back to some of your points around intelligent failures, but if I bring it up to a systems level, 
you talk in your book as well around systems producing consequential failures, not necessarily individuals. Yes. And the whole idea of, you know, self-awareness, situational awareness and systems awareness. And when I look at the way the world is interconnected, but digitally, mm-hmm. but also just moving into systems, ecosystems yeah. within organizations, without organizations. Yeah. Where's the leverage there in terms of yeah. the systems thinking? Why is it so key in, yeah. in understanding what you can learn from failure, Amy? I think the leverage is primarily around humility and then around the discipline to just step back and try to see the larger picture, just even if it's just briefly, right? We're, we're, we as human beings, we're prone to zooming in on parts, mm. on elements. Yeah. And when in fact the behavior of systems is almost entirely shaped by the relationship between elements. Of course. Right? So, you know, I might put mm. in a new HR, you know, sort of model. But if I'm not thinking about how does that affect with our our sales processes or our how does that interact with our mm. R and D and our innovation, then my beautiful shiny new policy might not work. So, being systems aware is about the training to just keep thinking about how does this connect to other things and how might this what unintended consequences might this decision today have for later so that I can get out ahead of it. And, and again, that's partly about preventing preventable failures. Mm. And, and if I come back to the idea of systems, and you know, we, we can't talk about learning today, I think, without talking about generative AI and what it's bringing to the table, what does that mean for the way we learn? And particularly about failure when it's all really about the human aspect of failure. So curiosity, humility, being able to reframe, being able to rejig our mental models. Yeah. What what do you see happening there, Amy? What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> well, I really have to say, I don't know. It seems like a brave new world to me and to, of course, so many of us mm. that, Everyone. you know, I know, you know, my expertise, as you pointed out, lies in human psychology, group dynamics, you know, mm. sort of leadership models that help us navigate uncertainty. What I guess I can say here is that this is, AI is is certainly going to have enormous effects on the systems in which we Mm. operate. And we should approach it with great humility and great curiosity. I hear a lot of, well, it's going to do this and it's it's going to make, you know, this better, patient care better. But but yes, and we better be very thoughtful and conduct our experiments as one does in a smart failure strategy at the right scale. That we mm. don't want to sort of roll things out organization wide that we haven't played with and experimented with to see how they work. You know, how do how do we support people's decision making? The final chapter of the book is called Thriving as a Fallible Human Being. Mm. Now we are all fallible human beings, and that's okay. It's got to be okay. Mm. But how do we, you know, maybe there's ways in which AI can help us be less fallible in some domains than we naturally are. But let's go in clear-eyed because there may mm. be ways in which it is going to introduce new failures that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. And, and what I took from your book as well is on that subject is we need to cultivate being fallible. <laughs> we need to cultivate being curious about how fallible we can yes. be, being comfortable yeah. with being fallible and actually, you know, using that's the missing piece of the puzzle to what technology is bringing for me. Yes. No, I agree. It's true because if we can approach it with more humility mm. then then we can let the technology be you know serve us well yeah yeah to do things we don't do well you know mm. it, it mm. doesn't have trouble remembering things the way we do 
no, but sometimes that could serve a purpose, can't it? So, and if I look at success as a function of sort of fast learning from failures, just coming back to, I mean, you speak a lot about Toyota production system, the and on cord, and being able to use the strength of early warning systems. What can that bring to creating a culture of learning? A healthy well, culture of learning. There's such there's such a lot to unpack here, and and I'll start by saying many of the complex failures that I've start uh, that I've studied, and these mm. they're worthy of study. They tend to be big ones, not just the little ones. You know, when you forgot your keys and you're late for a meeting and so on. <laughs> but but the the big ones, like the shuttle failure mm. at NASA, for example, mm. nearly all of the complex failures that I've studied came with warnings. You know, not not obvious. Like here we mm. are. We're mm. gonna we're going to fail soon, but subtle warnings, you mm. know, what, what I sometimes refer to as ambiguous warnings mm. or ambiguous threats. Mm. And an ambiguous threat is where at least one sentient being, you know, at least one human being in your organization or midst is worried, sees something that might or might not indicate the possibility that we're headed toward a failure. And what is Usually the case is that those subtle warnings are squandered. They're not put to good use. They're not, it's not that you have to overreact <clears throat> to all of them. It's that you have to at least get curious about them. Mm. Be curious enough to look a little more carefully at what might really be happening. And so the end on cord in the Toyota production system mm. is in a way, it's a way to formalize the power and the value of ambiguous threats. Because the end on cord is a physical cord above the assembly line that is there and invites any team member to pull it anytime they see something, not something wrong, but something possibly wrong. And, mm. and of course, something wrong. But but it turns out that 11 out of 12 pulls of the Andon cord, at least at one point in time when we were studying this, mm. are not failures. They were false alarms, as yeah, it were. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. But Toyota believes it's it's worth it, right? It's mm. worth pulling that cord. It doesn't stop the line to pull it. It just it starts a learning process. Mm. Because first of all, the one in 12 is really worth catching and correcting. We don't want any failed vehicles, right? And second of all, it sends the message that we are a learning organization and everybody's continually learning and everybody's eyes and ears, brains matter. But as a system, you know, the Toyota production system, I, I it, that's what they refer to it as. And it really is a system. It's not one thing. It's mm. not just the end on cord. It's the end on cord plus the leadership role models, plus the just-in-time Kanban cards, plus mm. there's a, a dozen or more elements of that system that come together to build a whole that is more than the sum of the parts, a whole that is designed for learning and the production of high quality products. Mm. Which brings us back to the whole systems awareness. Right. And, and, right. you know, which of course you can't have unless you have the sort of individual self awareness. And this shift from, I call it ego to eco, that is currently going on from individual to collective in all areas, particularly leadership, yes. and particularly the sort of human systems in an organization, for me is really important. And yeah. we can learn so much from just observing how systems manage failure. Indeed, uh, yeah. indeed. Yeah, and so many systems, I mean, we're all parts of systems, of but course. not all of them are thoughtfully designed. No. Many of them are just haphazard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which brings me to the intentionality of designing systems of learning. So if I look at your research and work on psychological safety and failure 
how do we intentionally design in an organization a healthy culture of learning, Amy? First of all, that we articulate that as a goal. The way to produce excellence today, products, services, is to be a learning organization, is to be part of a learning system, because there's just nothing static anymore. Yep. It's not yep. as if, okay, we we figured it out. Here's our, you know, here's our formula for success. Now just go do it. Mm. I think any organization that is, you know, is succeeding today is at least to a certain degree engaging what I'll call execution as learning. Mm-hmm. They're doing yes. their work, yep. but they're doing it with a mindful, learning-oriented way. They're tuned into the possibility of things, unexpected things happening or things going wrong, and then able and willing to catch and correct. They're tuned into the ever-present question of how can I do this better? Right, just mm. sort of continuous improvement mm. becomes essential for excellence today. It's a system in a way as a it's a mindset of learning. It's a culture or climate of psychological safety Mm. that enables and empowers learning. And it's whatever measurements or structures or resources you need to do the learning that you need to do in your part of the organization to do your contribution. Yeah. And it's got to be personal agency, hasn't it? Everybody has something to contribute to that. Everybody has their own mindset to grapple with let me put it like that because we do have to it's not just a one shot is it you know you fail once you have to manage your emotional reaction manage the way you think about it second time might be different third time might be different (laughs) right right and so as you say I mean this is so a lot of this is about emotional regulation Mm. and 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 when I talk about self-awareness what I'm really talking about is being aware enough to know when you are and are not choosing learning over knowing yes. right? because we we spontaneously opt for knowing i mean we just believe <clears throat> we see reality in all its glory yeah. and we don't right? we see a reality through our own lens our of own course. background expertise mm. biases and so sort of actively overriding that way of thinking to say instead i wonder what i'm missing you know mm. i want i wonder what sue sees that i don't see Think of the power of approaching relationships, whether that's with customers or team members, with that more learning-oriented lens versus a knowing-oriented lens, and it's immense. And I found that part fascinating, and I think it's even harder when you're in a fast-paced delivery environment where, of course, you revert to type. Everybody does, you know, your brain reverts to type. I know this, I know it will work, I'm going to do it. And of course, I'm looking for perfection, probably, and not excellence. (laughs) But I think that whole mindset, I work a lot on diversity, inclusion, belonging and equity and psychological safety is a big part of that. It's not the only building block, but I love this discussion. And for me, your book has brought something new for me to that discussion and another perspective of something else that is a building block for creating a culture of belonging. What what are your thoughts on that? That's, I love that. I love how you put that because in a way, this book, I mean, of course, the prior, my prior book was on psychological safety, the fearless organization and how essential that is for you know, mm. being a learning organization and, and indeed for inclusion and belonging. Mm. But this one is, a, is more, it's, that's all they're lurking in the background <laughs> and sometimes the foreground, but this is more about the substance of what it is we have to do. Yeah you know, what the, what the work looks like today and the fact, and I do mean fact that the work will bring uh, disappointments. It will bring some missteps along the way to, you know, mm. great accomplishments. And that now has to become a bigger part of the conversation. 
than I think it used to be, right? We have to talk honestly mm. about even the basic failures and the complex failures. We need to talk honestly about them so that we learn as much as we can from all of them. Mm. And we need to invite and engage people in as many intelligent failures as possible and make it safe to do to do mm. so. And on the sort of diversity theme, one of the things that I talk about in this book is how in most organizations, in most societies, there is an unequal playing field for failure, right? Yes. If you're in the dominant group, mm-hmm. your failures may be or usually less punished than if you're a unique representative uh, from a group that is underrepresented, mm-hmm. especially you know at the higher levels of mm-hmm. an organization. So your failure might be at risk of being attributed to other members of your group in ways that are quite scary. And so this is something we need to do better in organizations to level that playing field, mm. <laughs> to let us all fail with impunity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think it also brings a different, it opens a different dialogue and it brings a different example of how systems can work together in an unlevel environment. There are lots of unleveling play, unlevel playing fields, aren't there? But it, yes. just in the same way that psychological safety discussion allows the speak up, dialogue to happen and for us to understand what psychological safety means it's not about just about being nice no. it's not just it's about healthy challenge it's about having my ideas heard it's about being seen being valued being heard doesn't mean my idea is going to be chosen but you know, right. that whole framing of this is what it means for us I think right. the failure and the fact that you've simplified such a complex thing into frameworks that people then their brains control a little better so they feel a little bit more comfortable to say okay, we need to talk about intelligent failure. Doesn't mean we'll never have basic failures or complex failures, but at least we have some way of making them tangible enough to have a discussion about how we can manage them. That's right. That was the idea. And I thought, you know, part of of our allergy to failure comes from not having a useful and simple framework Mm -hmm. to sort the good kind from the bad. And I don't mean bad in a moral sense, but, you know, bad in a preventable sense, you know, Mm. bad in a, when we are at our very best, you know, when we are close to the ideal of a high reliability organization, for example, Mm. then we are, it's not that people don't make mistakes. They do, but, but we catch and correct them fast enough to prevent any harm or Mm. downtime. It's an aspiration. You know, the, the Holy grail would be, you know, an organization that never has any basic or complex failures, but we've got to recognize that we're fallible human beings operating in fallible systems. So they will Mm. happen. And we are all better off when we speak up about them quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I learned so much from the story uh, in your book around Verve Clico and that (laughs) happened there and how that happened. It was completely new to me and her perseverance and the way she looked at failure and the way she reframed everything. And I think we learned a lot about creative resilience, which for yeah. me is a skill that's quite new in organizations, resilient yes. and creative, as opposed to rubber band resilience and just for- forcing through. I think that this intelligent failure discussion can bring also yes. a different dialogue on the framing of resilience. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, yeah, framing of resilience is such an important aspect of this conversation. And, and thank you for bringing up that wonderful story. You know, it, it opens great. the last <laughs> chapter. And, mm. and, and why I think this is a terrific story to illustrate 
sort of failing well and what mm. it means and how you know mm. how any good entrepreneur is doing this effectively why is this a good story because she was born in 1777 yeah. right yeah. we're so used to thinking of this as a sort of a modern, a modern invention thing. you know a silicon valley invention it's not right this is old wisdom you mm. know anyone who founded and then built up a new company in at that point even a new industry had to do this stuff right? there was never anyone who magically had the entire plan and just had to sort of put it in place right mm. this was a this mm. was a journey as all journeys i think are all lives are mm. a journey into unknown terrain that necessarily involved many you know sometimes devastating failures along the way possibly the most devastating failure was the premature death due to a flu-like yes, yes. You know, condition yeah. of her of her young husband mm. um, when they were in their mid-20s. Mm. And, you know, that certainly was a huge setback, but she resolved to keep going forward. Hence, the Clicquot, yes, the, yes. the widow Clicquot mm. is, the, is the brand and certainly one of the most enduring brands in history. Mm. So resilience, right? She demonstrates resilience and it's a wonderful story, but all of us can nurture our capacity for resilience by better self-talk. You know, we talk ourselves off off the catastrophizing ledge mm. when when we sort of say, okay, this was this was a setback or this was this was disappointing. But no, it's not catastrophic, right? Mm. It's it's disappointing. What do I learn from it? And what might I try next? You know, that's really the resilience phenomenon is what will I try next and how will it be smarter and better because of what I've just learned from this setback. It's a little bit like the discussion around being a strong leader means not failing. Being right. a strong leader, you have to be resilient, and therefore we don't right. op- open the dialogue on it. Right, um, and so being a strong yeah. leader means not only that you will fail and you will be resilient and you will go forward, it means being open about that because mm-hmm. you need to help others. Yes. Once you appreciate that that's the formula, it's your job to help others yeah. also embrace that formula. Which is one of my last questions. Time is running. But how, how for you, Amy, can leaders explicitly use failure and the framework around intelligent failure to support building this healthy culture in their teams or in their organization, yeah. depending on where they sit in the organization? Well, the most effective leaders that I have studied, um, either from afar or up close, are the ones who are, and recognize this explicitly, willing to own up to their own failures. Mm. They're the ones who say, hey, I miss this, or this didn't go as planned. They understand that they are role models. And it is not acceptable or possible to expect other people to demonstrate those behaviors, but be unwilling to do it yourself. So I think the, the advice for leaders is kind of go back to basics. You're a fallible human being operating in a complex, uncertain world. Yes, there will be things that go wrong. Let's learn as much as we can from them as fast as we can. And let's make sure we have a healthy portion of smart risks, Mm. many Mm. of which will pan pan out as we hope, and many of which will not. Brilliant. I'm going to leave our listeners with those final calls to action. I do have one last question, which is more personal around you and what your most transformative experience has been in failure. Mm. If you had to pick one, what really sticks out for you, Amy? Well, gosh, it's a tough one um, because there's so many to choose from. (laughs) Maybe just because we're talking about the book, for me, 
I, I studied engineering as mm-hmm. an undergraduate. So I really didn't, I was not a writer. I did not write. And I had to learn. I mean, I wanted, ultimately, I got to a point in my life where I, I had I had things I wanted to say. So I had to learn to write. And that is a process of mm. coming to terms with your fallibility every single day yeah. um, and realizing that in order to write something that's readable and compelling, you must throw out, you know, way more than half of what you write. <laughs> you you yeah. know, you write it, you think, okay, <laughs> that's, I just said what I wanted to say. And then you look at it the next day and you realize it's terrible. And then you just make it better. So mm. to produce a, uh, I don't know, 300 page book, I probably wrote 3000 pages at least, but ultimately, you know, not all at once where right? you mm. whittle it down. So for me, I had to learn the sort of painful art of realizing when your writing is failing and trying to bring it back to something Hmm. more successful it's so hard to imagine when when you read your book (laughs) thank you so so well written and I'm going to invite all our leaders to read it to understand all the anecdotes we've we've not really touched the surface we've looked at a few things but um it's a great book I really enjoyed it Where's the best place for people to get in touch with you, Amy, if they want to know more about your book or if they want to engage with you? Well, I guess amycedmondson.com, which is my homepage. I also have a page on the Harvard Business School faculty site, which is probably a little bit more consistently up to date with my latest (laughs) articles and things. Okay. But I do my best on the other site as well. All right. Super. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your research, your insights, your stories. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation.